Mark chapter 13. Mark chapter 13. As you're turning there, you, uh, you may have, have heard about a, a, this story about a radio program that took place way back in 1938. Uh, one magazine summarized it like this. On Halloween morning, 1938, Orson Welles woke to find himself the most talked about man in America. The night before, Welles and his Mercury Theater on the air had performed a radio adaptation of H.G. Wells' The War of the Worlds, converting the 40-year-old novel into fake news bulletins describing a Martian invasion in New Jersey. Some listeners mistook those bulletins for the real thing, and they made anxious phone calls to the police and newspaper offices and radio stations, convinced many journalists that the show had caused nationwide hysteria. By the next morning, the 23-year-old Wells' face and name were on the front pages of newspapers coast-to-coast along with the headlines about the mass panic his CBS broadcast has allegedly inspired. Now, there wasn't a nationwide hysteria, but there was a bunch of people very confused, and they thought something real was going down. I mean, I can imagine some farmers out there with their 12 gauges awaiting for the Martian invasion. Um, but the, apparently, the, as the show was wrapping up, the live show, there was, it was flooded with journalists and police, um, and uh, it was, he was quite in hot water. What was interesting is this was creative fiction spoken to listeners about catastrophic events that were not real, but that set off confusion and for some panic. And when we come to our text today, we're going to hear Jesus share some things that is, are like, is like radical news. And um, for those hearers, and even for us today, it, it could almost sound surreal, like fiction. And yet Jesus is, is speaking truth through this whole passage. It's information that was, had future implications for these disciples, that has implications for us today. But it was to prepare them for those uncertainties, to prepare them in those moments of pain and chaos and what seems like unbelievable situations to not be alarmed and to not panic. He was preparing them because Jesus is Lord. He's been showing us through the book of Mark. We've been singing of it today. Jesus is Messiah. He is Lord. He is the Son of God. He knows the future and the past, and He is in control. And He wants to put His disciples at ease to remind them, whatever is happening, and as you follow me as your disciple, there's going to be suffering and pain on this road. But in all the, all the chaos, you can be hopeful. You don't have to panic. I am the Son of God, and I am for my disciples, and you can have hope and resolve in my mission. And so let us open up our Bibles. Let us read. We're going to actually read the whole chapter in its entirety. It's going to take a little bit of time, and we're actually going to be taking this in two parts this week and next week. And so just, let's just kind of buckle in and, uh, and listen to Jesus, and then we'll pray. And as he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be 
left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when all of these things are about to be accomplished? And Jesus began to say to them, see that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines, but these are but the beginning of the birth pains. But be on your guard. For they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues, and you will, be stand, you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before me, them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations, and they will bring you to trial and deliver you over. Do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given to you in the hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. And your brother will deliver brother over to death and the father, his child, and the children rise against parents and have them put to death, you'll be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. The one who is on the housetop not go down nor enter his house to take anything out. And let the one who is in the field uh, not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in in those days, pray that it may not happen in winter. For in those days there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of the creation that God created until now and never will be. And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human beings would be saved. For the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. And then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or look, here he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will rise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But be on guard. I have told you all things beforehand. But in those days, after the tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will be falling from heaven and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. And then you will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds and from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. From the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branches come ten- becomes tender, and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also, when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows. Not even the angels in heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard. Keep awake. 
for you do not know when that time will come. It is like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. But what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. Let's pray. Well, Jesus, you, you spoke these words to your disciples. And Lord, we want to understand its relevance to them. And you spoke these words and put them in the scriptures for us now in 2022 to hear from you because they are for us, your disciples. And so, Lord, as, as we seek to understand these words and respond rightly, Lord, would you, would you come and be with us? Because we need you, Holy Spirit, to know and understand. We need you to open up our hearts to see you, Jesus, respond as we should, Jesus, and to follow you faithfully, Jesus. But I thank you for the promise that we, that we sang of earlier. Though Satan would buffet, though trials should come, let this blessed assurance control that Christ has regarded our helpless estate and hath shed his own blood for our soul. It is well. We can say it is well with our soul because of what you have done and what you're doing and who you are. And so let us, let us get caught up in the beauty and the power and the good of that today. We need that. Amen. Amen. Well, one scholar called this chapter, chapter 13, a labyrinth of scholarly interpretations. It is a labyrinth in one respect. Um, if you take time to read various commentaries, you, there is a variety of interpretations of what's going on in here. Depending on your church upbringing, you may have very strong thoughts about what all of these verses mean could be very wide variety represented even here in this room. The things that Jesus says that have very futuristic implications. It's prophetic in nature. We hear this gloomy reference, abominations of the desolations. Sounds like a heavy metal band of some sort. And so this, this leaves scholars scratching their heads. And even for you, you might have been hearing these and thinking, what is going on? What is Jesus doing? Well, the interpretive struggle here is, in this chapter, is that there are parts that Jesus shares with his disciples that have direct, near implications for them in their lifetime and history. And then there are other parts that have very, sound like super future implications, pointing to something out there, maybe the one day, pointing to Jesus' return. And then there's ways that these words function for every disciple of every time. Well, we're not going to answer all the questions this morning. I have like 30, 40 minutes to go through this text, and we're not going to scratch all those itches. But there are some things that are clearer than others, other things that are not so much, and we're just going to do our best to sort of open hand those things. 
and, uh, and not get caught up in a labyrinth. Because I don't think Jesus gives us his word so that we're caught up in a labyrinth and we don't know where to go. I think the Lord wants to help us to hear from him by the Spirit, and we're going to trust that he does that. So one of the reasons we're going to do this in two parts. And so one of the important things to do when we start trying to understand the Scriptures, an interpretive key for all Scriptures, is we begin with what we call the then and there. We don't jump to here and now, like, what, what should I do with this? We say, well, Jesus, why did you say that to those 12 disciples or those four there in that moment? And what did it mean for those first hearers, those who heard the gospel of Mark that Mark was writing to, those first readers and hearers? So we're going to begin there, and we're going to start with just where does Mark 13, this chapter, land and what has been happening, unfolding of what Jesus has been doing. So a little bit of a snapshot here. Jesus entered back in chapter 11 into Jerusalem, and things have really slowed down in the gospel of Mark. So far since chapter 11, this has only been a few days. It is leading up to his crucifixion on the end of the week. And he's had numerous conversations and interactions, and they've all been taking place near or in the temple there in Jerusalem, where the center of Israel's worship is, the relationship to God. And there's these encounters with religious leaders and authoritative groups. And Jesus has declared that this temple, there's judgment coming upon this this, uh, temple. Remember the fig tree? There is now an end to it as a place and the center of God's worship and where people would access God himself. Jesus has declared himself Messiah. He is going to be that place. And there is judgment coming because they are rejecting him as Messiah. So Jesus has been teaching his disciples through all of this process that he is the Messiah, and he doesn't want them to be disillusioned when they're following him as his disciple. When they follow him, is it going to be some erected or earthly kingdom where he's going to sit on a throne, it's going to be some political manifestation, they are going to suffer as they follow him as their, his disciple. He's preparing them, and that's what he's doing in this text. I think this is what believe Jesus is after. His disciples are to keep trusting and following him as Messiah in a world of calamities or sufferings for his sake while proclaiming his gospel all the way till the end. After Jesus dies... After he resurrects and he ascends, there is not going to be bliss for his disciples. Hard things are going to follow for his disciples. They're going to pick up crosses like his own to follow him. And and there are things that these 12 disciples are going to encounter, other disciples that were around that would hear and those first hearers and readers of Mark, they, he was preparing them for. And we will get to understand that there are things for us in 2022, and there are things here that have been serving disciples since then as well in all times. So let's, let's start with there, and let's see where we go. Verse 1, so they are leaving the temple. Remember, this is a continuation of all that's been happening at the temple, and now they're leaving the temple. They're walking out of the temple and once again, the temple is the subject, except Jesus is on his way out. I don't know, we could imply that he's done. <laughs> Things are done here with this. And one of the disciples, an unnamed disciples, says, look, teacher, what massive stones. He's just, just enamored with this, the beauty of this place. What magnificent buildings. He's just caught up in just the size and grandeur. Now, we've mentioned a couple times some details about the, the temple and the temple mount, but we're going to mention a few more things because it, it was 
unrivaled in its design and its, and its, its epic scale. Herod, apparently this was his masterpiece. This, this had been in construction for over 50 years and it had yet to be accomplished. That is a serious building project. You could actually fit 12 football fields in the, on this Temple Mount area. That's how big it was. Enormous size. The blocks that were used, the foundation stones, were like, uh, unlike anything around. Some of them were over 60 feet long. And to kind of get an idea of the, the, the size of these, there are stones now in the city of Jerusalem that are about 42 inches long. They're 11 inches, or 11, uh, 42 feet long, I'm sorry, 11 feet high, 14 feet deep, and they weigh over a million pounds. And there are hundreds of these now, bigger than that, in Herod's temple mount that he has erected. The, the royal portico, which is sort of the entrance to this, there are these massive columns with these Corinthian capitals on top of them. It's said that it would take three men, arm, like hand to hand, that could, to get around the size of these, these columns, and there's they're all over the place, 40 feet in the air, beautiful cedar paneling, just lifted and rise above all everything else, just this spectacle. Every time I drive down through Minneapolis, I'm on 35, and I see U.S. Bank Stadium, I kind of get one of those experiences, like it just, it just rises above everything, it just stands out, this behemoth, kind of intimidating, all the sharp edges on it, I'm not sure if you experience that, it's ridiculously huge, it rises above everything, it's intimidating. If only the team inside of it could intimidate and rise above everything else. Just had to take that opportunity. So you can imagine just this, the temple is just above everything. It's, it's epic in scale, breathtaking. And so it's, it's no wonder that people would comment and say, say such things. And, and Jesus, unmoved by its scale, do you see these stones? a million pounds each, some of them. Not one of them is going to get left on top of the other. Every one of them are going to get thrown down. Now, if you were the disciples, it, I mean, you asked, it, you made a reference to how grand and everything was, you would, it would be pretty deflating at that moment. I mean, this had to be a disturbing comment. I mean, it, disbelief. Jesus, are you serious? Do you see, it took 50 years for this to be built, the scale, the glory of this, and you're, you're telling me there's not going to be one stone, one brick on top of another? It would provoke some questions, and so that's what ensues. Next thing we know, our setting shifts, and now Jesus is hanging out on the Mount of Olives. You, you could see here a picture, it's a modern photo, obviously, of from the Mount of Olives, the view of over the Temple Mount, which is still there existing there, the Temple Mount, not as it was, 300 feet above Jerusalem, looking over the Kidron Valley, and he has this private conversation. We drop into this private conversation with the four, these four disciples, Peter, James, John, and Andrew. These are some of the first disciples that Jesus called. Three of the four were on the Mount of Transfiguration. It pulls into this tight little setting and private question that's asked by the disciples. We've seen a lot of foot-in-mouth conversations and questions from the disciples. I can just imagine they're just thinking, let's just get Jesus kind of cornered and ask him this because we don't want to be embarrassed by our, his response. So we listen in and Jesus hears these two questions and they basically ask, when will these things happen and what will their, 
be, what will be the signs when these things happen? So it's really important to just kind of hone in on that, these things. Jesus is answering throughout the text first about these things. What will happen to the temple and the city in Jerusalem in this, this destruction that Jesus seems to have communicated prophetically? And also woven through the chapter are all these answers that relate to forecasting future things, end times things. And that's where some of that debate comes. So how does Jesus answer? What, what, is, what is his reply? Well, as Jesus does often, he, he sort of roundabout answers their question, but in a way that gets to what he wants to teach, an indirect way. And the disciples, see, are wanting to, to focus in on timelines and signs. Jesus wants them to do the opposite, not get caught up in timelines and signs. And he wants their hearts to be ready to face whatever disciples will face in a broken world as they follow him in his name's sake and to keep trusting him as Messiah. And that's why you hear this repetition. You might have picked up on it as we went through the chapter. There's over 18 imperatives or commands within this chapter, like watch out. Don't be deceived. Do not fear. Understand. Don't be alarmed. Be ready. Be on guard. Don't be anxious. 18 times, Jesus is trying to tell him. Do not be dismissed. Don't be mystified. Don't be confused. Don't be caught up in sign seeking. You don't need decoder rings about what's going on. I want you to be prepared to fix your eyes on me as the true Messiah as you follow me as your disciples. A bunch of bad stuff is going to happen in the world. And I don't, and when they do, it doesn't mean the end is coming. Not yet. Not yet. Next week's text, we heard it this morning, but Jesus says, I don't even know that time. The Father knows. Keep watch. Focus on the right things. Commentator Donald English observes the disciples are still struggling with their misplaced questions and priorities. He says, Jesus, he does not encourage almanac discipleship, trying to track times and everything else. The question should have been for them, by the disciples upon hearing this prophetic word, how are we to live in light of such a prophecy? How are we to live in such a a situation when chaos like that is going to happen. So if that's true, what does he want them to do to live in light of what is coming ahead after his death, burial, resurrection, and ascension? How does he want them to be ready in all of these commands he gives them? Well, he begins with being sure that they aren't led astray by false saviors. Look at verse 7. Watch out that no one deceives you. Many will come in my name claiming, I am he, and will deceive many. The I am he is basically a reflection of the Greek I am, the, the name of God of the, of the Old Testament, um, Yahweh's covenantal name, the name Jesus links to himself as he calmed the storm when he was coming upon his disciples. He says, it is I. So others are going to come and claim that they are some sort of savior. They're imposters. They're They're fakes. In verse 21, and then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or look, here he, there he is, do not believe it, for false Christs and false prophets will rise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. 
So Jesus is saying, don't buy it. I have told you these things ahead of time. Be prepared. It's going to happen. There's record of, of messiahs who claim to be messiahs prior to Jesus. There were, on record, those claiming to be messiah among the Jewish people after Jesus. So there was previous to Jesus. There were ones after Jesus. And there are some to, today that somehow claim to be some prophet of God that are not real. And there will be ones in the future. Jesus says, do not buy it. Do not believe it. Jesus is charging his disciples, I am the Son of God, the Christ, the Messiah. Look to me and be on guard. Next, he tells them that there will be wars, rumors of wars, nations fighting nations, famines will take place, earthquakes are going to take place. There's historical records just within decades of this, of wars and famines because of wars and natural disasters like earthquakes that took place. Since the fall, there's been broken political systems. Since the fall, there's been broken implications because of that in creation. Jesus says, verse 7, don't be alarmed. The end is not yet. They're just birth pains. So we can consider and know that wars in Ukraine doesn't mean it's the end. Jesus has already told them this, but he tells them again that you're going to suffer for my sake as my disciples, and he's preparing them specifically. And this, this is going to be very hard. It's not just imprisonment for corrupt governments. He says that families, members are going to turn on you and turn you in, and you're going to be imprisoned or maybe die. Stand firm. Stand firm, and you're going to be hated by, by all by everyone for my name's sake. Church, we should not be surprised when we are hated for Jesus' name's sake. We shouldn't do things to make people hate us, <laughs> but when it's for Jesus' sake, his name's sake, we are in the midst of these words, Jesus saying, you're mine, you're my disciple. And he tells them that in this, in this crucible of persecution, it's going to give opportunities for you to witness about who I am. You're going to testify of my gospel. We know that this suffering is going to come down the pipe. We, we just look to the book of Acts, and we see all of these things begin to unfold. The apostles in Acts 12, we see it was about the time that King Herod arrested some who belonged to the church intending to persecute them. He had James, the brother of John, put to death with a sword. And when he saw that this met with approval among the Jews, he proceeded to, see, to seize Peter also. We see narrative after narrative, story after story of those things unfolding. Through suffering, through persecution, God will use it to give opportunity to preach and witness about his gospel. That's what he tells him in verse 10. And the gospel must first be preached to all nations. Jesus Priority is that his good news would go through his disciples to all the world. His good news, his gospel would go to all nations, not just the Jews. It would go to the Gentiles as well. And God would use persecution to spread his good news to the world. And as referenced, our Acts is a record of these things going forward, the gospel going forward. And all the failed attempts to squash and stop and thwart the gospel going forward Jesus' mission goes forward by the power of the Holy Spirit through his church to all the world. 
Paul stands before governors and kings and he proclaims the gospel to them and along with the Gentiles. So Jesus tells his disciples, this is what self-defense looks like when this comes against you. Rest in the Holy Spirit and his power that he will give you words to speak. It's not a, an excuse for laziness or not being faithful students of the word and preparing for those things. It's, it's depend on me and the power of the spirit is going to give you courage in that and the words to speak. So false saviors are going to be around. Social and political and earthly calamities are going to be around. And there's going to be persecutions for my namesake. And then Jesus gives some specific warnings and things that they should do when destruction comes to Jerusalem. Remember these things. Jesus is pointing back to their question. Remember these things. And we have this phrase that Jesus says, when you see the abomination that causes desolation standing where it doesn't belong. Now this term, abomination that causes desolation, it comes from the book of Daniel, some of those prophetic writings. And it basically speaks about a profaning of the altar in the temple, some type of abomination, a horrific profaning of the place of worship with severe tribulation that would come following that. And Jesus connects that and then gives these details that things that people should do when this happens. Very specific things to do. Running and getting away and not getting clothes and whatnot. Luke's gospel, Jesus in that account, says this in um, chapter 21. And when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near. History records that during the Jewish revolt in 66 AD, that eventually led to the entire destruction by Rome in 70 AD. Now that would be approximately, if I, my dates were right, about five years removed from when Mark's hear, first hearers and readers would have experienced his gospel. So 64 AD is when Mark would have probably written this and it had gone around. Josephus, historian who was around during this time, I think he was born around like 33 AD, died in 100 AD, he wrote this regarding what he observed after this destruction. Caesar ordered the whole city and the temple to be razed to the ground, and all the rest of the wall encompassing the city was so completely leveled to the ground as to leave future visitors to the spot no ground for believing that it had ever been inhabited. Like no one even... Did somebody even live here in this city? That was their experience. Jerusalem was leveled, specifically that temple as well, destroyed. Remember, Jesus is speaking to these four disciples, which have implication for his other disciples, and those first hearers and readers of Mark. I think it's safe to begin with understanding this connection very well could be to a real historical situation that of the destruction of Jerusalem in the temple in 70 AD, rather than just a future event. Some of those reasons, I think, are some of those details, instructions that he gives. Those in Judea, well, if the whole world is in demise, well, I'm not, not in Judea, I'm in Chaska. And why would you worry about your cloak if it is the world's end? And if you're pregnant, it, that doesn't matter. Um, but it's wintertime, that doesn't really concern the end times. Everyone's going to be freaking out in that end day. So remember our buckets. There's things that relate to historical events back then and there, and there are some things that relate to future 
eschatology, the future day or the one day. And then there's ways that some of these texts overlap. So I'm circling around about to, to say this is a difficult, debated text. There's other implications that it could relate to the man of lawlessness in Thessalonians. But I'm not here to like hard and fast come down on this. What I want us to do is ask Jesus, is why Jesus is sharing this with those disciples, and then how does this then relate to us? Jesus, again, is preparing his disciples for when these things happen to not get sucked into speculation of what they mean and what this means to be the end time or to be sign-focused, but, verse 7, to not be alarmed. The end is not yet. These are just birth, birth pains of things that are going to happen in a broken, chaotic world. Don't be anxious. Don't be fearful. I am the sovereign son of God who knows, and I'm in control. And these prophetic words, I mean, can you imagine those washing over those first hearers to say, these things that are happening, Jesus told us about, so we can have hope. We can remain faithful. And all the chaos and all the loss, Jesus says he's even shortening days out of his mercy to care for his elect because he loves them. He wants his disciples to, verse 9, be on guard. Be on guard. So they needed to hear that. So why, why are we getting led into this private conversation on the Mount of Olives? Something that would happen way back then. Some things that are very historical that took place. Well, those apostles needed to hear it. Those, as we noted, Mark's first hearers needed to understand that. I love this little statement in verse 19 that just reminder that beginning to end, from the beginning, when God created the world until now, He is in control. There's not an atom running loose in the universe that God is not in control of. Sovereign control over all creation and all powers and all governors, and He cares for His sheep. He cares for His elect, and He speaks words of preparation and promise and protection over them so that they could remain faithful. And so... Though these have prophetically specific truths to those people, it's, it's relevant for every generation in this, that, that aren't we in a time where things are chaotic, that there are famines, that there are wars, that there are persecutions, that there's cause for alarms and fear and anxiety, there is an increased intensity towards those who claim Christ to stay faithful to His name and to His Word? Are we not tempted to look around at false hopes and things that the world would offer to us, people or things, as saviors and messiahs for our plight and situations? Do we not need to hear from Jesus, be on guard? Be on guard. Be watchful. Be alert. Don't be led astray. Don't get your eyes caught up on things that are not me. Teacher and author James Hamilton writes about how this can take shape in our modern time to, so we can discern 
for our own hearts, our misplaced hopes. He, spoke, he says this, Jesus spoke these things to those who follow him so that they could be able to tell the difference between the real gospel and satanic false promises made by those who want to change the world into a utopia where Jesus is not Lord. A dream world where the good news is not that Jesus died and rose again to bring us to God, but that people are now healthy because the Messiahs have fixed the healthcare system, or differences reconciled because the thought police enforce correct speech, or peace in our time, a world hunger ended and third world debt relief accomplished, kingdom with come without Jesus. To all the false hopes, Jesus says, don't be deceived. Not that many of these things are good. We would want working healthcare systems. We would want hunger to end. We'd want people to work towards peace in our world. But there will not come a utopia that comes by man-made things that is empty of the gospel ultimately. Jesus is our hope, saints. Jesus is our hope, saints, and, and we need to be reminded, don't be alarmed. Don't be alarmed. Natural catastrophes are going to happen. Political upheavals are going to happen. Christians are going to be hated by all for his name's sake. That's including you and I. And those who stand in that are going to, the ones that are going to endure to the end. We stand by keeping our eyes fixed on Jesus. There's an organization that helps persecuted Christians in one of their more recent reports. Their numbers came in. This is taking an amount of time from October 2019 to September 2020. Their data says that more than 340 million Christians are living in countries where they might suffer high levels of persecution and discrimination because of their faith. Recent dates for 2022, that's rose over another 20 million, 360 million. During that reporting period, 4,761 Christians were killed for their faith. 4,488 churches or Christian buildings were attacked. 4,277 Christians were unjustly arrested, detained, or imprisoned. 1,700 Christians were abducted for faith-related reasons. Meaning on an average, every day, 13 Christians are killed for their faith. 12 churches or Christian buildings are attacked, 12 Christians are unjustly arrested, detained, or imprisoned, and five Christians are abducted for faith-related reasons. And the details are just unfold in all kinds of places, like somewhere even where in North Korea, if you're a Christian, it's, it's a death sentence. Kim Jong-un is reported to have expanded his prison camps in which is estimated 50 to 70,000 Christians are currently in prison there. We need to pray for the global church. When I was reading these this week, I just, I'm so, it's sobering. Comparatively, in Carver County, we got it good. This is pretty easy going. It makes us uncomfortable. But Jesus, he speaks those words to those beloved believers. And he speaks these promises to us as well. Let the reader understand. Let the reader understand to not be alarmed, but to be on guard. Jesus, will, will this happen to us? When, when will this happen to us? When will some of the things that they experience 
increase in realities for us, imprisonment and greater suffering? I don't know, but we, we are called as a church, as God's people, to fix our eyes on our Savior, our rescuer, our hope. When things come pressing down on us, we remain faithful to Him to preach His gospel, to not be disillusioned, but to place our eyes on Jesus, our Messiah. But how could we do this? How can we do this? Well, we can't do this on our own. Jesus points to the reality that the Holy Spirit is what we need. We need His power. We need his, the courage that comes with the Holy Spirit. We need the Holy Spirit's wisdom and guidance that comes from His indwelling grace. We see that through, the, through Acts, the, the dependence on the Spirit for the gospel to go forward when opposition comes for His disciples. And that is true for us today. We cannot keep faithful not be alarmed, not be anxious without God's power and His help through the Spirit. So we, His disciples, are to keep trusting and following Jesus as Messiah in a world with calamities and brokenness and sufferings for His sake while proclaiming His gospel to the world around us all the way to the end. When we read this chapter, we kind of, kind of feel gloom and doom <laughs> in some sense. But this, this isn't what we should leave with this. We, we should leave with the reality that Jesus has revealed himself to us. We know the Messiah. We are not questioning false messiahs. We have the revelation of the true Messiah for us to look to. We know that he is the sovereign God who sees all things and he's working in all things. And the world isn't spinning out of control in some crazy, random sense, we have a sovereign God who's there on His throne, and we look to Him, our Savior, the true Messiah. And so, He's keeping His people till that end time, whatever that end day would look like as we live in the last days until He returns. And so, we are hopeful disciples, not gloom and doom disciples. We have a hope for us for that one day when he returns, he's going to make all things new. All the chaos, all the brokenness, all the false things will go away and we will be in his presence. And he will be our God and we will be his people. That's good news. That's good news. Let's pray. Well, Lord, we, including me, including me, can read the news and the gloom of that could, can overshadow the hope that, and the resolve that we should have. It can induce anxious hearts. It can induce confusion, worry, fear. And Lord, there, there are things pressing in on us that would even maybe cause us to doubt truth. But Lord, I thank you that you, you keep your elect, you keep your people, that we can endure all of those things around us and, and be a people when the world that does, does not know Christ is upended in confusion and anxiety and chaos. Lord, there can be a peace. 
Lord, because of the increase of your government and your peace, there will be no end. And we are in your kingdom, and you are our king. And so I just, I pray, Lord, for our hearts. It has been prayed earlier today that there would be an increased, by your spirit, strength and power for our hearts to be a people that, that are on guard, that, that have resolve, that are awake, but we're able to experience a peace that comes with knowing that you are our Savior, knowing the end from the beginning. You are the way, the truth, and the life, Lord, and, and you are with us. And there is a one day when all this is going to go away, and we look forward to that day. We say, come, Lord, quickly. But we are your people. And so help us to be, help us to be resolved. Help us to be grounded in that peace. And help us to keep our eyes fixed on you, Jesus. Amen. Amen.